God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is sometimes the way that Christians share the gospel. Um, But if you think about it, it didn't work out like that for Paul, did it? Because when Paul became a Christian, he lost a promising career. He lost his standing in the community. And I think as we read through the New Testament, we get the hints that when he became a Christian, he was disowned by his family. When Paul became a Christian, life for him became infinitely harder. Not to mention the fact that because Paul was a Christian, there were all over the vast Roman Empire who hated his guts. In the vast Roman Empire, there were people everywhere who wanted to harm Paul. So, what part of this is God's wonderful plan for his life? Because when Paul became a Christian, life for him became infinitely more difficult. And his life was filled with sufferings of various kinds. And even now, Paul is heading toward Jerusalem knowing that imprisonment and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. And so you see here how Paul's Paul's friends pleaded with him to change his plans, but he, he wouldn't budge. Why is Paul like this? How can we possibly explain Paul's thinking his decisions, what is driving him? Well, we have an opportunity this morning to see what really is driving Paul. And the first thing that we see is that Paul is constrained by the Spirit. Paul is constrained by the Spirit. Now, the first question that arises from this passage is a rather perplexing question. And that is, does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Because if you remember, back in chapter 19, verse 21, this is what Paul said in chapter 19. Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem was something that the the Spirit of God compelled him to do. And then back in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, we hear Paul saying, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, even though the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So did you get that? Both in chapter 19 and chapter 20, we read clearly that Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, his desire to go to Jerusalem and even to face suffering, it was due to the constraining power and the will of the Holy Spirit made known to Paul. So Paul's decision and desire to go to Jerusalem is his obedience to the leading and the guidance of the Spirit. And even when the Holy Spirit let him know that the path before him, 
is filled with suffering and afflictions. Paul considered everything. He was realistic about the cost that he would have to pay in order to be obedient to God's call. And he obeyed and he followed the Spirit's leading. And it is because he is following the Spirit, he is being constrained by the Spirit, that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer. But then this chapter, this passage, brings us to the Christians in Tyre. In chapter 21, verse 4, we read that the Tyre believers, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Did you get that? And then in, uh, in a few verses later, in verses 11 and 12, a prophet named Agabus He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And Luke writes, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So what's happening here? On the one hand, Paul is going to Jerusalem because of the Spirit. And on the other hand, the believers urge him not to go to Jerusalem in verse 4, through the Spirit, and in verse 12, because of what they have heard from the Spirit. Well, this is a rather complex situation, isn't it? It's a rather puzzling situation. On the one hand, Paul is heading to Jerusalem to suffer because of the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, we have Christians who are trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem because of the Holy Spirit. Now, is this what we can expect? Does the Spirit say one thing to one person and another thing to a different person? And if that's what the Holy Spirit does, then how can you trust anything that the Holy Spirit says. Well, the answer to this perplexing situation is actually right before us if we read a passage closely. Notice that we are told explicitly that Paul resolved in the Spirit and he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But the Spirit only let the disciples know that Paul will suffer But he didn't tell them what to say to Paul or what they should do with this information. So that's the difference. On the one hand, Paul is being led by the Spirit's explicit guidance. You must go to Jerusalem and suffer. On the other hand, the Spirit let the disciples know that Paul is going to face a great deal of afflictions, but he did not tell them what to do with that information or how they ought to respond in view of their revelation. And so what's happening here is this. Uh, You remember that the book of Acts began with the Pentecost. And at the time of the Pentecost, when when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit and his spirit was poured out upon the believers. And the outpouring of the Spirit was the visible evidence of the coming of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, we read several 
many Old Testament prophecies that when the new covenant becomes effective, when the new covenant comes upon us, then the Holy Spirit will be poured out on people. Because under the old covenant, the nearness with God was a privilege that was reserved for the select few. You see, it was the few individuals throughout the old covenant who really could experience God's closeness. But then Jesus came. And when Jesus died, one of the first things that happened when Jesus died is that the curtain that separated the holy of holies, the curtain that barred worshipers from entering into God's presence, that curtain was torn. Symbolic and significant in that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ removed the barrier that stood between the holy God and sinners. And when the risen Lord sent his spirit, he sent his spirit not only to a select few privileged individuals, but his spirit was poured out richly and abundantly on men and women, old and young, the Jews and the Gentile, so that the people who are far from God were brought near. And that's the significance of the Pentecost, and that's the significance of the amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which resulted in many people prophesying. It was a visible evidence that the new covenant is here. But what we also see is that even though many people receive the gift of prophecy, not all receive the gift of discernment. Not all possess the gift of understanding. And so these are people who prophesied in the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the Spirit of God revealed to them that Paul will suffer greatly. They spoke out of their deep love for Paul. Don't go. Please stay. Don't go. But their deep love for Paul actually led them to misunderstand God's will. So it's not that the Spirit says one thing to one person and a different thing to a different person. These dear believers who deeply loved Paul, out of their, out of their sincere and deep love for Paul, they misunderstood God's will. So that's the first thing that we see, why is Paul doing what he is doing? He is constrained by the Spirit. Secondly, he is constrained by love. He is constrained by love. Notice in verse 13, now these people, they plead with Paul because they've been made aware by the Spirit that Paul will face great suffering. And they plead with him, don't go, please, stay, change your plans. And in verse 13, Paul says, oh, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul does not budge. He does not give an inch. Why? Not because he's a difficult person. Not because he's one of those you know, arrogant, proud sort who, who thinks he has the answer to everything and nobody knows anything. 
No, that's not what's going on here. You can plainly see how much Paul loves them and he knows how much they love him. And you get the sense that Paul, if he could have done it, he would have done anything and everything for these dear believers. But even when the believers were telling Paul, you will suffer, please change your plans, Paul would not give up an inch because why? Because he remembered Jesus' words. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, this is what Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is one of those jarring passages of the Bible where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and you don't hate your own father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, if you don't hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. It, this is one of those passages that makes us say, what? <laughs> it's jarring, it's so shocking. Because we know, don't we, that the Lord himself commands his people to love even their enemies. And the Lord commands his people to love their father, their mother, their wives, their children, their neighbors, and yes, even yourself. These are a given in the scriptures. And so it's so jarring, so shocking, it's scandalous to hear Jesus say, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father. You have to hate your mother, your children, your wife, your husband. So how do we understand this? Well, we need to realize that that the word hate here, it's serving a comparative function. And so what Jesus is saying is this. Again, God doesn't say one thing to one person and a different thing to a different people. Jesus is not contradicting the teachings of the scriptures to love our father, our mother, our neighbors. What Jesus is saying is this, that his disciples must love him so deeply that you, if you are to be Jesus' disciple, you must love Jesus so deeply that your love for the people that you love the most in your life, in comparison to your love for Jesus, seems like hatred. That's what Jesus is saying that your love for Jesus must be so surpassingly deep, so true, so profound, that were you to compare the love that you have for Jesus against the love that you have for the people that you love the most, because your love for Jesus is so much deeper that your deep love for the people that you love most will seem to be in comparison a hate. And that's what Jesus is saying. This discipleship, Christian discipleship, if we were to summarize it simply is love for Jesus. And it's this strong love for Jesus that bears all 
for Jesus. That's why the very next thing that Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, after he tells the disciples, you must love me. You must love me more than you love anything else and anyone else. The very next thing that Jesus says is, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, it is, it is the deep love for Jesus that bears all things. And Jesus says, you must love me. And in that love, you must take up your cross. That is to say, if that is what Christian discipleship is, you realize that the fact that Paul was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and suffer is just another way of saying that Paul was constrained by the love of Christ. He was constrained by his love of Christ, his love for Christ to go to Jerusalem and suffer because in his deep love for Jesus, he would bear all things, he would endure all things, he would face all things. And at last, the disciples understand. In verse 14, Luke writes, And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. You see, it's at that point that the disciples realized that Paul was honoring the Lord's will, but that they, they who had tried to stop Paul, that they, for the best of reasons, they love Paul, you see. That's where they're coming from. But for their best of reasons, they had missed the Lord's will. And so they prayed. Now, how do we know that they prayed? Well, early on, we read about how the believers, after pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul wouldn't change his mind. So the believers gathered on the beach and they prayed. So you know, praying is everywhere in, in Acts, isn't it? The early Christians were praying Christians. But particularly here, we, we know that these believers prayed when they said, let the will of the Lord be done. Because that phrase, that kind of phrase, appears in the New Testament in the context of prayer. You remember what Jesus said when he taught his disciples to pray. Matthew 6, he taught his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again in Luke chapter 22, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So you see, more often than not, whenever you come across the phrase in the New Testament, let the Lord's will be done, it's, the context is prayer. And these disciples, they realize that Paul, his decision to go to Jerusalem and face suffering, that's Paul honoring the Lord's will. And they realize that they have been wrong and they are now praying, let the Lord's will be done. And so they committed Paul to the Savior. They committed Paul to the hands of the Savior who loved him through his own suffering, who loved Paul to his last breath. You know, there is no safer place for a suffering believer 
than the throne of mercy where Jesus hears prayer. That's the safest place where you and I can be, at the foot of the throne of mercy where we pray to Jesus and Jesus hears our prayers. And there can be no doubt it is because the believers were praying for Paul that he is able to remain steadfast against his many afflictions. And you know, that's why we pray for one another, isn't it? Prayer goes up. Mercy comes down. We ask in weakness. God answers with strength. Now, on the one hand, we as Christians, we as loving Christians, we intuitively understand that we don't just pray for people. We pray for people and we understand that God has appointed us to be his hands and feet. So in addition to praying for people, we want to do everything that we can to serve and love people that are struggling, that are suffering around us. We do that, don't we? But it's at the same time so important for you to understand that when you pray, it's not nothing. When you pray, you have done something that is far more important, far more helpful, and far more valuable than what you can possibly accomplish in your strength. Sometimes I meet with believers who, whether because of life circumstances or because of their advanced age, feel that they have outlived their usefulness to God. You know, I can't do anything. I'm not doing anything. And I tell them, but you can pray, can't you? I know you pray. I know you're praying for me. I know you're praying for the church. I know you're praying for the saints. And hear me. That is a powerful, that is a beautiful, that is a valuable ministry that you are doing. And that's why we pray. And that's why these believers pray for Paul. And it's really in no small part due to their prayers that Paul remains steadfast and endures the afflictions that come his way. You know, with, with all this said, I have to say, it is absolutely true that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But maybe not exactly the, day, the way that we sometimes mean by that. <laughs> the gospel as a way of escaping difficulties in life, if that's what you mean by that when you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, if your understanding of the gospel is that it helps you to escape suffering and difficulties in life, first of all, it's false advertisement, and it's wrong. You know, you do see this time to time around you, don't you? Some people, they have a great zeal for God while life is manageable, while life is pleasant, while the life is happy. But they walk away from God when suffering and disappointment come. Now, compassion. 
Compassion dictates that we treat suffering people with kindness. And when you see people who are suffering greatly, when they have suffered great disappointment in life, when their faith is being shaken, have mercy, be compassionate. But with that said, when you see people who have zeal for God while life is great, but walk away from God when life becomes difficult, you realize the faith that affliction can erase, the faith that affliction can destroy, was probably not faith that was placed in the suffering and dying Lord. Jesus suffered and died. So the faith that affliction can destroy and erase is probably a, a faith that is placed in an idol of our making. And so let me ask you, whom do you worship? Do you worship an idol that lies to you and says that you can have a fabulous life? Or do you worship Jesus who calls you to take up your cross? But remember, remember that Jesus took up his cross first. And he took up that cross first for you. So will your faith endure and persevere when afflictions and trial come? Or will your faith be destroyed and shattered when affliction and trials come? Whom do you worship? And that brings us to the third and the last point, which is that we are all constrained to suffer. Well, that's encouraging. (laughs) Boy, can you really know how to perk things up, don't you? We are all constrained to suffer. Well, let me explain. Isn't it true? I think you and I both. You know, we are fine, aren't we? We are fine with Jesus who calls us to follow him. And we have no problem following Jesus who loves us. We can do that. But when he tells us to take up our cross in order to follow him, you know, it's that bit that we're not so sure about. But as we have seen throughout our study of Acts, there are two things, two main things that are the mainstay of both Luke's presentation and two things that are the the controlling realities for Paul. And that they are resurrection on the one hand and suffering on the other hand. Paul, well, the book of Acts itself begins with the command of the risen Lord, doesn't it? And Paul and the apostles, wherever they go, they proclaim the risen Lord, and they proclaim the hope of resurrection. And most recently, we saw how God raised Eutychus from the dead. So resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of the believer's resurrection is the one mainstay of throughout Acts and throughout Paul's ministry. And on the other hand, there's suffering. Isn't it? Isn't it so odd that when you proclaim the word of life, people threaten you with death? 
Isn't it so odd that when you proclaim the message of God's peace, people start a war against you? When Paul proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, it brought him immense suffering. And so resurrection on the one hand and suffering on the other hand, these are the two mainstays of Acts and for Paul, for his ministry, for his thinking, for his theology. And in Paul, resurrection and suffering are inseparable. Not just that suffering must come first before we are resurrected, but that the believer's suffering here and today is exactly how we experience the power of the risen Lord. So let me explain that. For Paul, taking up the cross does not just mean the suffering that comes as a result of gospel ministry. For Paul, taking up the cross to follow after Jesus means that we are united to Jesus as we experience the myriads of ways things have gone wrong in life. We follow Jesus while and precisely as so many things have gone wrong in our relationships, in our work, with our health. These are all what Paul understands as taking up our cross and following after Jesus. And the place where you see that, one of the places where you see that is 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul says that we have this treasure. What Paul means by treasure is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. And what Paul means by jars of clay is our mortal bodies, our mortal life, so fragile and so easily, too easily shattered and broken beset with so much weakness. So Paul says, we have this treasure, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, contained in the jars of clay, our mortal bodies, our mortal life, so weak, so easily shattered, and from the outside of no great worth. And what Paul means by that is that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we continue to experience so many things in life that are not what they should be. There are so many things in our lives, so many things in our relationships, at our work, with our bodies, with our health, so many things that are just wrong. But these are precisely the jars of clay that contain the treasure of immeasurable wealth, Jesus Christ. And you see, it is in our weakness, it is in our suffering 
It is in our brokenness that we experience the power of the risen Lord. And this treasure of risen Jesus, that this treasure imparts to our jars of clay immeasurable worth to our lives. And it imparts to our jars of clay the courage that can face every hardship with Christ. Because in our every affliction, and it's so important for you to understand this, when the New Testament talks about the suffering of the believers, it's not just the sufferings experienced by Christian missionaries sitting in a jail because they proclaim the gospel. When the New Testament talks about the sufferings of a believer, it's the thousand different ways we experience that so many things have gone wrong in this world. And that we groan, we sigh, and we weep. But as we face our many afflictions, the love of Christ constrains us to trust Him, to endure, and it gives us hope that we will not always be so fragile. Because when death, death strikes its final blow and shatters these jars of clay, that's when the life of the risen Lord Jesus breaks through the jars of clay and to make us strong, make us glorious, the perishable passes away and we receive the imperishable. The dishonorable is no more and we receive the honorable. What that means is, as we experience the myriads and thousand different things that have gone wrong in our lives, around us, for us, we, this is the time we sigh and we cry. But this also is the time to laugh. This also is the time to sing. Because we suffer. We suffer in these jars of clay. But in these jars of clay, we contain this treasure of immeasurable worth, Jesus Christ. Yes, you and I, we are constrained to suffer. But for a while. And in the meantime, the love of Christ constrains us to trust, to believe, and to face every affliction with faith and hope, knowing one day, one day when death finally shatters these jars of clay, that's when Jesus the power of his indestructible life will break forth and make us new. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the instructions this morning. We thank you that you have called us to be Jesus' disciples. And we pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would give us fresh courage and strength that we might remember what treasure we contain in our weakness. And so lift us up, O oh Lord, 
and preserve us until that day when we are glorified, when we are made new, when we are healed. So strengthen us today and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.